The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, it's um, good to be here and see all of you here. It's been a while um, since I've taught on Sunday, but I have done it before. I was actually here Friday night for the Women's Full Moon Gathering. And I want to thank Gil for inviting me to um, come and teach here today. I was at the month-long retreat, so I'm just back a week from a month of meditating, and Gil was one of the teachers there. Before I launch into my talk, I actually wanted to make a couple announcements rather than leave them to the end, um, because I tend to forget them when they're at the end, and since you've already just heard some announcements. Um, There's two events that I'm going to be leading that some of you might be interested in. One is a a day-long retreat in Santa Cruz. It's called Reclaiming the Awakened Feminine, and this is a day-long for women. And it's from uh, 10 to 4 at our our center in Santa Cruz. And I have some, uh, there's some flyers out on the table there that look like this. So if you're interested in that, there's no registration um, required. You can just come. And then, um, as it was said in my bio, my bio, that I do lead some nature-based retreats. And I have one coming up in June. I'll be teaching this with Susie Harrington, who is a Vipassana teacher in Utah. And it's on the lost coast of California. And the, I have found that it is so lost that many Californians don't know where it is. <laughs> And it's actually a stretch of about 80 miles, undeveloped, pretty much undeveloped land. It's the longest stretch of undeveloped coastline on western U.S. It's between Mendocino and Eureka. And we have a, we, it's a, what I might call it is, uh, I don't know, soft camping. <laughs> it's, we do have to, there are no roads there, so we do have to hike in, but we're hiking into a, um, actually a house that is on uh, has been grandparented in on this public land and we hike in eight miles and people will be camping or staying in the house the teachings will be done outdoors and nature will be the focus of our much of our teachings so and there is a hot tub <laughs> so that's why it's kind of uh, a nice uh, middle ground between um camping and and a, a regular residential retreat. So I also have a flower about that if anyone is interested. I'll also be, Susie and I will also be teaching a, a nine-day retreat in nature in Utah in October. And, oh, I'll mention this now too, there are four Vipassana teachers who have, we've gotten together to create an organization called Sky Mind Retreats, which is... Um, uh, combining um, information about all of the retreats we're offering. And if you're interested, I do have a sign-up list here if you'd like to be on our mailing list. So it's Mark Coleman, who some of you know is a, um, a Spirit Rock teacher in Marin. There's myself, there's Susie in Utah, and um, Allison writes in Santa Barbara. So... We're trying to organize that and expand that. It's a very wonderful, very wonderful way to teach the Dharma. Um, so my talk today 
is the title of it is Nothing to Do. And I have a subtitle, which is Il Bel Far Niente, Italian. Il Bel Far Niente. I don't know Italian, so that's my best, <laughs> my best guess at how to say it. Some of you may, may know that. And I will translate what that means later on in the talk. So this talk is actually part of a three-part series, but each part is, is uh, a whole on its own, so you don't have to worry about the other two parts, although they will eventually be on the, the Vipassana Santa Cruz website if you want to follow up um, with that. And this, this talk today, this uh, nothing to do, is based on what I call a, um, particularly in Tibetan tradition, they call these pith instructions. And they're short instructions that um, really get to the heart essence of our practice. They're sort of like the slogans in AA, something you can remember and repeat to yourself to help you um, get back to um, your what the what the teachings are really about. So the full the full um, pith instruction is nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no one to be. So I'm going to focus this time on nothing to do. And also in the Tibetan tradition, they, they talk about teachings on the, uh, have different levels. There's the outer level, the inner level, and the innermost level, or the secret level, which means you approach a teaching from all these different levels. So I'm going to do that in talking about this idea of nothing to do as an aspect of our practice, the different levels of it. So you might say, again, from the most surface to the most mystical level. So this um, this nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no one to me, you might think that sounds pretty good for meditation, for a meditation period. I'll try that in my 30-minute meditation in some way. Or you might think it's a, it's a good instruction for going on retreats, silent retreats, like I was just on. But I'm going to talk about how this is the, an important instruction for us all the time, even in the midst of all our activity and all the things that we do. So right off, you might be thinking, well, um, what could that possibly mean? Nothing to do when all we're, you know, we're so active, we're doing things all the time. What is that? Does it mean I stop what I'm doing? Does it, what, what does it mean? So, um, one of the thing, one of the places I want to start is just to to look at the what I think of the two kinds of doing, primary doings in our life. There's the one, the most obvious one, the, the sort of conscious doing, the outward action, the busyness of activity, all the all the things that we are engaged with in kind of a, a physical and verbal and planning way. And then the second kind of doing which we, we confront in meditation is the habitual doing, the conditioned doing of the mind. So that's usually semi-conscious or maybe totally unconscious or uh, activity of the inner thinking, of the, the, the worrying, the, the planning, the remembering, the distractedness, the preoccupation, the, um, the fundamental reactivity of the mind, the mind that's going out to grasp or 
or pulling back an aversion, that then um, that uh, it's this doing of the mind that actually is the source of the doing, the activities of our life in many ways. It's also the the um, the origin of what sometimes in our modern culture called hurry sickness. I don't know if any of you have um, experienced the impulse to be busy and hurry all the time, but that comes from that. So on the, on the first level to investigate here, too, is to really, uh, it kind of begs the question, well, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And how are we doing what we're doing? And this is a very significant and important place to begin to really pay attention in our lives, to bring a depth of our practice into our lives, looking at the purpose, the intention, the quality, the very nature of our doing and activity. And we can bring to this what is sort of the very basic level of wisdom, um, which is the the practice of discernment. And um, one of my teachers, Christina Feldman, calls this the kindergarten of wisdom. The basic discernment between understanding what we do and how our activities, which ones are going to lead to more freedom, more happiness, more open-heartedness, more connectedness, And what of our activities and involvements and practices are actually leading to more conflict, more unhappiness, more suffering, more contractedness, more fear? So we begin to do this assessment, this discernment, to really look at what we're doing and what the consequences are. And we begin to evaluate our choices, our priorities, and um, really see if what we're doing is serving us in in um, some basic ways, nurturing us in basic ways, and also deepening our spiritual understanding and our journey to the path of the end of suffering and freedom. This is from Ajahn Chah, who's the famous Thai forest master who was the teacher to Jack Cornfield and um, a number of other great uh, teachers, Ajahn Amaro, Ajahn Sumedho today. And he said, you say you're too busy to meditate. Do you have time to breathe? Meditation is your breath. Why do you have time to breathe and not to meditate? Breathing is something vital to people's lives. If you see that Dhamma practice is vital to your life, then you will feel that breathing and practicing the Dhamma are equal. What is the Dhamma? Nothing isn't the Dhamma. And this next quote is from Thomas Merton, the great... uh, Trappist, I guess he was Trappist, Trappist monk. And he wrote, who became very interested in Buddhism at the end of his life. And actually, um, he died in 1968. So he wrote this following statement then. And he didn't leave to live to see how 
how busy and complicated our lives could, could get since then. So this quote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, in everything. Does that sound familiar, some of these? I'm going to read that again and then I'll finish this, the, the uh, quote. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Frenzy destroys our inner capacity for peace because it kills the root of inner wisdom. The other thing I want to add is something I like to repeat often in my teachings. And I call it the doctrine of always practicing. And what this means is, until we reach a place of what I might say complete harmony and complete um, complete acceptance of our life, and I'll talk about that later in the talk a little, we're always doing something. We're always involved in activities. So we're always practicing. We tend to think we're practicing. I'm practicing um, meditation, mindfulness. I might be practicing loving kindness, or you might practice the piano, or you might you know, practice something else in your life. But actually every moment where giving priority to qualities and habits and ways of being. And when we give energy to those, it's, it, we're practicing. So we need to become aware moment to moment. What are we actually feeding? What are we actually practicing? And right now, what are you practicing? Right in this moment, you're practicing. You may be practicing listening, but what quality of listening? Are you practicing with uh, openness, um, with ease, with contentment, with um, a kind of receptivity? Are you practicing with judgment, impatience, worry, distractedness? These are all qualities that we either feed or we don't. And it's very important to begin to notice what you're practicing. I, um, one of the big lessons for this, for me, has been um, watching my parents. And my parent, my mother, in a way, for her life, practiced a kind of acceptance. And my father, throughout his life, has practiced worry and anxiety. And he's now 91, and my mother's 87. And I see the fruits of those practices. Whereas my mother is rather content in her elder years and has a kind of happiness, my father is quite um, unhappy and unable to give up his practice of worry and anxiety. And I often see that when he has some worry and anxiety that we can do something to relieve it, to 
to take care of whatever he's worried about, there's immediately another one that fills the spot because he doesn't know what else to do. That's his relationship to life. And so I think it's very important to, to see what, we're, we're, um, what we are practicing, not just in our meditation. So the next level of this is a, a, a kind of this um, nothing to do is kind of to look at actually doing nothing and that possibility at, at times. I also teach um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and one of our assignments, maybe about halfway or so into the course, is to assign people to do nothing like 5 to 15 minutes a day. And this means not meditate, not anything, just sit and do nothing. And it's a wonderful exercise because it gives people, maybe for the first time in their life, encouragement and permission to not be productive, (laughs) to not be active, because we can turn meditation into a very active, productive-seeking activity as well. And I remember particularly one woman who came into the course, as many people do, obviously, with anxiety, a lot of tension, a lot of agitation. And we were teaching mindfulness meditation and so forth, but it was this exercise that broke something open for her. And something totally shifted where she became this great lover of doing nothing. <laughs> and it became so that she, um, she it just opened her to seeing things, to being in nature, to a kind of happiness and joy and freedom that she hadn't experienced before. And this is also from um, Thomas Merton. We are so obsessed with doing that we have no time and no imagine left for being. As a result, men and women are valued not for what they are, but for what they do and what they have for their usefulness. So we are so um, often in America so driven towards being productive for doing, for activity, for some future result that we, it creates a kind of materialism about even ourselves, about how we, how we see ourselves and each other rather than the practice of just appreciating who we are and who others are. And this is from John Kabat-Zinn in the book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. The flavor and the sheer joy of non-doing are difficult for Americans to grasp because our culture plays so much value on doing and on progress. Even our leisure time tends to be busy and mindless. The joy of non-doing is that nothing else needs to happen for this moment to be complete. For this moment to be complete. And in many ways, that is the essence of the teaching. And one more quote, uh, an oft-repeated quote from one of my favorite heroes of the 19th century, Thoreau. And Thoreau wrote this in the mid-19th century, just when in New England, Walden Pond, 
I lived in Massachusetts for 25 years. I've been to Walden Pond. And I have a real appreciation for Emerson, Thoreau, and others at that time because they began, the Transcendentalists, began thinking and writing and reflecting right in the midst of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when actually all our t- the way we relate to time and work changed dramatically. So this was radical at that time as well as now. There were times when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of head or hands. I love a broad margin to my life. Sometimes in the summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie amidst the pines and the hickories and sumacs, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sing around me or flitted noiseless through the house, until by the sun falling at my west window or the noise of some traveler's wagon on a distant highway, I was reminded of the lapse of time. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands could have been. Having just come back from a month of silent retreat, this quote particularly um, hits home, and that line, I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, through that not doing much, through that silence and just being is... um, is profoundly true. So we have this possibility of stopping being caught up in the driven activity of the mind and become to slow down and stop for moments for the stillness, what I call the stillness and silence that exists behind all the noise and activity of life. You know, many traditional cultures, of course, have this appreciation and some not so, some modern cultures as well, the the French and the Italians, for example. The, the French, of course, have the expression joie de vivre, which is joy of living or, or joy of being alive, and I like to think of it as just the joy of being. I actually gave a version of this talk a few days ago in Santa Cruz, and one of our Sangha members is French, and she spends part of her year in France and part of it here, and she, she raised her hand and said, oh, my God, you know, it's such culture shock coming here. And she talked about the difference, how in, in France there's much more appreciation of, of really just relaxing, of just sitting in the cafe, of just being with um, loved ones, of not making plans, and that kind of not filling up the weekends. And in the Italians, and here comes this line, il bel far niente, and it means the beauty of doing nothing. And um, I've found this, as many people have, in reading the book, Eat, Pray, Love. And um, Elizabeth Gilbert goes on to say that, it, that il bel far niente has always been a cherished Italian ideal. The beauty of doing nothing is the goal of all your work. The final accomplishment from which you are most highly congratulated. The more exquisitely and delightfully you can do nothing, the higher your life's achievement. I um, actually put El, El Bel Farniente in Google and wanted to see what would come up. And actually what came up came up were lots and lots of blog entries 
from people who had read Eat, Pray, Love, and that had this that this um, line had stuck out for them. And then it would be a long dissertation about how how hard it is, how much trouble they have, how busy they are, how how they they um, they don't know how to do nothing. And some of them, a lot of them were Americans, but not all of them. So, again, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do to be. There's nothing to do to be. So it is this beingness that we are practicing. And, and essentially, meditation is the practice of being. It's learning to move from, a, from doing to being. And many of us, as I, I said earlier, make meditation into a um, another busyness, another type of activity, another thing to accomplish. We bring our busyness of our minds into our meditation, and um, and the whole idea is to work with that skillfully. But sometimes it just takes over our meditation, and we forget we're even meditating. And then also we bring the sense of striving, trying to make something happen, trying to do it right, trying to accomplish something, trying to get something, trying to force something, having meditation, another uh, you know activity we mark off on our daily list. And um, so that watching the breath becomes a project, another project to accomplish. The famous psychologist Winnicott, some of you who any of you have some sort of graduate work in psychology will have probably read some Winnicott. And one of his he he says some very wonderful things about the human behavior and human mind and an, an assessment or evaluation of our culture. And one of it one of the things he said as children in this culture we aren't given the space to be we're not allowed to remain, to rest in unstructured states of being. Unstructured states of being. And so as adults, we are uncomfortable with these same unstructured states of being. And yet that's in essence what awareness is. That's what meditation is. And that's really where well-being and happiness is to be found. So instead, we have this kind of discomfort with that and we feel we must do we have all kinds of messages and we we fill our life with endless tasks trying to be enough to do enough to finally get to some end of enough but i can tell you there is no end there is no end to that trying to be enough or do enough it will always, you notice you have a list, you mark everything off, and there's a new list. This is not where you will find happiness and peace. So, there is nothing to do. There's nothing to do to be free and to awaken. Because what you will discover that all along, that this is it. You've been seeking elsewhere, looking elsewhere, and this is it. This is enough. Being is enough. 
you are enough and there is nothing else you need you have everything you need for freedom and awakening and it is only found right now So beingness, awareness, and the freedom that comes from this is just this surrendering, coming to rest here. And gaining the confidence and trust in that. We move from doing to what I like to call dynamic receptivity, and sometimes I call it sublime or divine receptivity. And this is from Lama Suridas, one of my teachers. This openness and awareness practice of meditation really attunes us to receptivity and openness, a way of being that is very useful, even radically transformative. We can listen better rather than telling our story and talking so much. We can tune into things as they are rather than what is, receive what is happening and surrender to that. Give ourselves up to this process. We don't have to tell it, to push it, to fabricate it. It is all happening without our interference. That's the meaning of Wu Wei, beyond action and non-action. So I'm going to end a little bit, talking a little bit about Wu Wei. And this is getting into what I would say the most the innermost teaching. <laughs> and this is when our actions, they say our action goes beyond action and non-action. Our, our doing goes beyond doing and non-doing. And the full, full expression actually is way, wu, way, which means action without action. So sometimes wu, way is considered natural action and that we come to a place of such presence and openness and connectedness and naturalness that we no longer are, as Suryodha said, pushing, making, fighting, struggling. They say it's, it's as the same way that the planets revolve around the sun. They do this revolving, but without really doing it. And a tree grows. It does this growing, but without doing Thus, thus knowing when to act and how to act is not knowledge in the sense that one would think now is the right time to act, but rather a just doing the natural, immediate, responsive, present thing. So it is a kind of doing, and all of us have had this experience, brief as it may have been, a kind of presence, a kind of responsiveness where the doer and the doing and the what we're doing things upon all become one. And there isn't so much thinking and planning and, and uh, how I'm going to do such and such. And often we feel this, this is sometimes in Western psychology called flow in sports. And I think of it, I do a little kayaking or running the rapids and uh, or in dance or in anything we can have this experience of this complete uh, being one with this. 
Wu Wei Wu has also been translated as doing things without fakeness. And that means being authentic and real. Without the delusion, what I call the delusional agendas of our false self. There's a, in Taoism, there's the, the phrase, the Tao abides in non-action, yet nothing is left undone. So when I gave this talk again a few days ago, someone afterwards gave a metaphor which I thought was useful, so I'll steal it from him, that, that um, he used the metaphor of a wheel. This has been used before, for this kind of thing, that in the center of the wheel there is non-action. The center of the wheel is not moving. And yet because of that center, all the spokes are there and the wheel can move. And it's kind of like that when we begin to rest in who we really are, which is this awareness, this stillness, this kind of silence, this, um, um, it's really a, to use these paradoxes, of course, silence beyond silence and sound, a stillness beyond movement and stillness, um, that it is actually when we rest in that, that we have a kind of peace and then all action um, skillful action um, becomes possible. So we are awake and alive and engaged in our direct experience of interconnectedness. So, um, again, I'm going to end with um, part of a poem by T.S. Eliot. This is something you probably, many of you have heard, and I've been hearing it since the 70s, and I'm still kind of amazed at it, and and realize that T.S. Eliot must have been somewhat of a mystic. He had to have had some mystical experiences to be able to write this. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, Neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither rest nor movement, and do not call it fixity. Where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance." So I'm going to stop there and let's just sit quietly for a minute and there'll be a few minutes for any comments or questions and I'll ring the bell in in a minute. So just allow yourself to relax and breathe, just be and in that just being if any thought or question or comment comes up, we can share it.
Yes. So music is involved with the uh, formative days of a meditation community in this area. And a bunch of people glommed on to this idea of nothing to do. And uh, for a period of time really contested and uh, made life very difficult and unpeaceful. Um, <laughs> any counterbalance to this teaching? Uh, it was the hippie days and they, <laughs> <laughs> they overdid it. <laughs> very self-righteously. <laughs> well, um, Well, certainly being self-righteous isn't um, part of it. And um, I guess all I can say is it's something for each of us have to understand it for ourselves and figure out what it means for ourselves. And as, I, as I'm getting at towards the end of the talk, it doesn't mean not doing anything. I mean, that can be a helpful practice, but it means how do you do things in presence, how do you do things without, um, with the awareness that this is all there is, instead of doing things with a future agenda, which is how we do most of our things. We're not here for them. So that's really what it's, it's pointing to. So. What does the Italian phrase mean? Il bel ferrato. Pardon me? You began with an Italian phrase. Yeah, il, il bel narfiente is the beauty of doing nothing. So uh, I resonated with what you said by, you know, doing nothing. I'm just curious to know how you put that into, say, your life when it comes to the activities that you need to carry on life. Like, say, for example, you know, getting the money to, you know, carry out your daily activities, etc. How do you combine doing nothing with, uh, activities like that. Mm-hmm. Well, again, on a certain level, on a sort of outward level, there's things we can do to to slow down a bit, to to actually take breaks where we just stop. Uh, Tara Brock calls this the sacred pause. We, which brings us back, which can help bring us back to, to the present, to what we're experiencing. So there's just these momentary ways of more what I call literal not doing, where we, um, we begin to integrate this kind of stopping and being, even for just brief moments in our life. And that can be very powerful. And I know a number of people who've taken that kind of practice. And uh, another, again, another way is I teach, I tell people to, when you're stopped, like at a light, at a stop sign, in a line, then stop. Breathe. Just allow that be a moment to practice this kind of being and non-doing. So there's, there's many ways like that that we can start to fold it in in little ways into our very busy, active lives. But the other way is kind of what I was saying before, is that it begins, we, as more we practice and the more we're in touch with, you might say, our true nature, and our true nature, in one way to talk about it, is this awareness. 
Awareness doesn't go anywhere. Awareness doesn't have any content or form. Awareness isn't coming or going. Awareness doesn't move. There's a profound openness and stillness within that. And the more we rest in that as our nature, the more the activities and the doings become less. They're still doing it, but it's coming out of that. And there's a very different quality because we have to make, I have to make a living. That's why I'm here (laughs) in part. Um, We have to do, you know, we take care of our families. We do the fun things we like to do. We, you know, whatever. So there's, it's, it's how we do it, how we relate to it and where we're coming from as we do them. That makes all the difference. And, um, and also, as I said, first thing I said is really evaluating really assessing are we doing things that we really need to be doing and what are the choices we're making in, in our activities. Are they nourishing us or not? Yeah. Is that... Yeah. Yes. You were talking about um, nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. In your readings and observations, do trees and animals and birds and things like that, they're all, they are moving. But do they move at a constant pace, not a fast pace, uh, overactivity, but do they move at a constant pace so that in that they have their peace? Because a lot of people, myself included, like animals more than humans. That a lot of what? I like animals much more than humans. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, I can't, I, I was just thinking, I, I, I can't really talk for trees and animals, um, but I can talk, I, I can talk for my, my experience in, um, I, w- I don't know if they're always moving, they're always changing, <laughs> and we're always changing, so there's always movement in that sense, there's always shifts and changes going on. Um, I think in, in nature, again, there's a, um, m- one reason I like to practice in nature, nature has, the wild nature doesn't seem to be afflicted with the, the delusions of the human mind. I mean, we're part of nature too. And one of the things we've been given is this human mind, which seems to tend towards delusion. Meaning, we get mixed up. We think that there's a past and future. Nature isn't mixed up about that. Nature is only existing and living in the present. And with that, there's a whole load of suffering that doesn't exist. Because our suffering primarily comes from our mistaken understanding, our projections onto self and other, the stories we create in our minds. I can't speak, again, for maybe, I don't know if some of the other primates or some of the marine mammals like porpoises have some kind of story making that they do but um, we seem to be it's our gift and and our curse (laughs) so um, so that's that's why one of the reasons I find practicing in nature so profound because you begin to see you begin to learn from nature one thing I often say at the end of a retreat is um, 
If you go, if any of you had the opportunity to enter a retreat, a long silent retreat that's been going on, and you come in late, say, you will find that the field that has been created by that retreat will take you deep into meditation immediately, as if you'd been there for that time. So the way I put it is that the natural world, going out into nature, into the forest, is like going into a retreat that's been going on for millions of years. And you start to pick up that, um, that the, 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 even with all the activity of nature, there's, you, I find, and often other people, that this, this stillness and this silence that is underneath the activity is much more palpable there. You can, it's here right now, always you know, in this room as well. But there's, um, nature directs you, I find, to that, to that more um, easily. And there's a kind of harmony and, and the, the, the lessons of interconnectedness, the lessons of interdependence, the lessons of, uh, all of those are so apparent there. And those are all the lessons we tend to ignore in our isolated minds and world. And um, so there, so I don't know if that answers your question about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I think I need to, it seems like a good question to end on. So I think I'll end there for today. And again, I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you all for listening. And um, again, if you want more information about any of these other upcoming activities, I'll be here for a few minutes. And let's see, I'd like to just end with a a dedication. So may any goodness that has come from this time together from our practice, from our reflections, from our insights, from our hearts, any, any of the positive energies, any of the goodwill that has come from this time together. May we dedicate that, may we share that with all beings everywhere so that all beings find out who they truly are, so that all beings find the peace of the Buddha so that all beings are free.